So this is verse 1, chapter 6, Genesis. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. But the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We'll stop right there and we'll pray once more. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday in your house. We thank you for the the situation we find ourselves in, your day, in your house, with your word, with your children, our brothers and sisters in Christ, with our, our Bibles open in our laps. Lord, we ask that you, you teach us, as, as we've already mentioned more than once, that we would be good students, that you'd be the master teacher we know you are. You'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and Lord, total jurisdiction over our hearts should we perceive by your grace where we need to change. We thank you so much for this uh, weekly time together. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have arrived at Genesis 6, which is interesting. It's, it's important. Uh, it has its own reputation for certain things that's within it. Uh, but basically, we've got human wickedness reaching a fever pitch and God's heart reaching a breaking point. That's probably the best way to describe at least these, these first seven verses. Eight seems to be quite the outlier. In the middle of all that, you've got this man that God finds favorable. So it's a difficult passage. It's, it's kind of a cryptic passage. There's some things said we don't know exactly what is meant by them. We'll take a shot at that here in a moment. But because of those cryptic things, it's known to be a controversial passage, probably the most fought over and debated over passage out of the entire book of Genesis. Not because it has much to do with, say, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but because there's interesting things that inquiring minds want to know. And when you go to a church, you expect an expert to tell you, because we can get to the bottom of everything in our Bibles, can't we? No, there are some things we will not know until we see Jesus face to face and have the opportunity to ask him. And I do believe part of that is in Genesis 6. In fact, if they've got booths and tables with ask the God of the universe, he's probably delegated those answers with lots of different booths and a very long line will be standing under the banner Genesis 6. So um, for whatever that's worth, we're... Hopefully not going to have to spend 
all the time this morning with that. But by the end, have a way to tie this together and know on our way home, okay, what is this for and what is it saying the loudest? The difficulties have to do with the following questions of interpretation. First of all, who are, and there's a number of who are these we need to understand if we can. First, the sons of God, then the daughters of men, then the Nephilim, whoever that is, and are they the mighty men of renown or the mighty men of valor? And then after we've taken a stab at those, what does it mean that the Lord regretted what he had made or was sorry that he did it? Can, can God not foresee something going a certain way and then legitimately be sorry that he started the process in the first place? So I have to answer that as well. Um, only eight verses, so we've got time to take each one, each at a time, and we'll reread most of it. But back in verse 1, when man became or began to multiply, and that's good because that's the first thing God told humanity to do is to be fruitful and multiply. They've done that on the face of the land. And daughters, we've listened to two genealogies having to do with sons. Now we have mention of daughters were born to them. And then... The question at hand, the sons of God, who are they, saw that the daughters of man, who were they, they saw that they were attractive and they took them as their wives as they chose. So one thing worth mentioning is this has kind of got echoes of what we saw in the first chapter, Genesis, where God's finished making it all. He stands back and says, it says God saw that everything was good. In fact, the last one says it was very good. So God's not surprised by his handiwork. He hasn't impressed himself. He had this in mind all along, but he's stating for time and record, I call this good. So now in chapter 6, it's clearly saying um, this is different. Uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden, we have that... Uh, combination of tree of the knowledge of good and evil you sh you shouldn't take of it for the day that you eat thereof you will surely die and what does it say that that Eve did she saw that it was good and took it for herself and also gave it to Adam you got the same combination right here um, sons of God daughters of man they saw the daughters uh, says they were attractive, that's good, right? And they took as their wives any as they chose. Now, the first time we saw this, it was breaking God's law. Is this a continuation of breaking that law, continuing to decide for yourself what's good and taking it on that merit? Well, some have highlighted that and said, yes. But there's three opinions. If we start with uh, sons of God for what that means. And here's where we get into the good stuff some of you have been waiting for. Some believe it best to understand these as the sons of Seth, as opposed to the sons of Cain. Remember last week, the week before that, we talked about a, a family tree. Adam and Eve are at the bottom. They have three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Cain killed Abel, so it's not three branches. There's just two. After the flood, there's just the one branch. That would be Seth. Everyone else after Noah who came from Seth survives in an ark. It's a complete reset. But 
Some want to say that Seth's line is the godly line that God will introduce Noah to save the world and ultimately Jesus to save us from our sins. So some want to say that's what's meant by the sons of God. They're people on the earth, but they're from that lineage of Seth, not Cain, because Cain's line was ungodly. We read about that in chapter 4. Now, others would understand these as superior men, such as kings or tribal heads. These are officials of some sort. That would be the sons of God. And then others still, this is the third, and these are by no means uh, what I consider to be um, in order of preference. The last one is a reference to non-human spiritual beings like angels or demons, which if that's true... Some believe that the reason for the flood in the first place is to kill off a hybrid race of humanity after angels got, for some reason, involved down on earth and it took a flood to rid the world of them. Only problem is it's not very clear and it doesn't say that exactly, nor does it say that it's Seth's line, nor does it say that it's kings. It just says sons of God. So which do we think makes most sense? Or do any of them in a race outrun the other such that we can just call them a winner and move on? Each has some strengths, perhaps. They've got more weaknesses. None are a clear winner, in my opinion, in most of scholarship, which is the reason why we still call it controversial thousands of years later. If we took the options in reverse and start with the idea of spiritual beings intermarrying with humans, um, you've got passages in the Old Testament that do use sons of God to mean angels. The other places in Scripture, the Old Testament, where the name is called sons of God and it's in reference to angelic beings. They're not fallen angels, but let's leave open the idea that say if they misbehave, they could be fallen later if that's what in fact they did. But we have absolutely nothing that would prepare the reader of Genesis to know that Seth's line is meant rather than Cain's or either one of them because there's just nothing in the text or anywhere else to give us a clue as to the fact that that's what he may have meant, the author that is. Uh, The same would be uh, with earthly kings. There's nothing in Scripture that would kind of tie that in. Now, there is possible New Testament support for such ideas if it's angels and humans. Most would point to 1 Peter 3 or 2 Peter 2, where there's a case of described fallen angels, which we would call demons. Uh, There's also mention of the flood, and there is mention of the destruction of Sodom. And it could be that Peter intends to point back to Genesis for all three of these. And there you may have a viable case if we could figure out that that's what Peter was doing, but he doesn't specifically tie it to Genesis or these events that we're reading. And then you've got Jude 6, which may substantiate the fall of these angels as the result of having left their proper habitation. Jude's talking about some time where angels fell because they left the boundaries that God gave for them. And we would understand that to be Satan, his demons, who will be the occupants of hell at some point for forever. But how do we know that this in Genesis 6 is what 
Jude is talking about. There's no real obvious articulate connection between the two. Could it be? Absolutely. Do we know for certain? Not at all. So I'm not helping very much, am I? Uh, Not to overlook the common theme of demons taking up residence in human hosts through demon possession during the time of Christ. If you sat through Sunday school, you know that Jesus and his disciples cast out demons from time to time. So the concept of a demon wanting to possess a human being is not strange to those of us that read our Bibles. But it's a little different to uh, position yourself as a human, live within humanity, get close enough to some attractive girl's dad to get her or him to give you her hand in marriage, which is what it would have taken. That's a long, drawn-out process. Um, Is that what's going on? It could be, but it might not be. And... um, I wonder, and those of you who've listened to me preach for some times, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm rather on the cautious. I, I'm, I'm not one to fancy my own opinion, especially from behind this box. If we got main and plain, let's, let's go with those and, and, and be confident in doing so. I don't think this is a main point, and I certainly don't think it's a plain point. Um, if the angels got in trouble for leaving their proper place, Could it be that Peter and Jude are warning us to stay in our proper place? I mean, the only time any human being sees beyond the veil into the spiritual realm is because of a miraculous event. Let's just say you're the servant of one of the prophets and you're worried that the big army is going to be the end of you. Oh, go to the window and look again. And miraculously, they're able to see what's actually there and there's this host of heaven that outnumbered the enemies. But that's not normally what happens. I've never prayed myself into a trance where I could see things into that other dimension. In fact, most of the time when you get a little bit on that fringe, you remember when the disciples found those dudes that were uh, casting out demons and then they tried it and what happened in the chapter of Acts? They ran away afraid and naked because the demon-possessed people whooped a tar out of them? Yeah, that's... That's what happens, what Jesus say. This is only handled through prayer and fasting. This is not a small thing. It's a big thing. So if we can't see and if we don't know, I want to lean back on the notion that we're not supposed to. Uh, We will later, but there's such a thing as too much information. When God takes Paul up into the third heaven in a dream, does he tell him, go write a a book about it? The church will want to know. He says, don't. Talk about it. It's too good for words. So maybe this stuff is too good for words. Uh, We can keep going um, because I think more important than these fuzzy details is the clear indication that mankind by Genesis 6 is a a lost cause. Uh, Whether by the line of Seth betraying their calling or demonic forces have gained a stronghold that we don't know about. Um, There's more, but we'll leave that where it lays. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Best we've got here is this seems to indicate a shortened lifespan as as part of what God plans to do about the world's wickedness. Uh, This is kind of one-seventh of a lifespan pre-flood humanity. Last week we were talking about Methuselah almost lived a thousand years, which isn't even a day on God's 
time scale, right? A thousand years is one day, one day is a thousand years. And if we lived a thousand years, good grief, two of us could reach all the way back to Christ. But we don't. Ours is about 70 or 80. Here says 120. And then on the other side of the flood, for a brief period, you've got people living for a few hundred years. But by the time of Abraham, it's about 120. And it seems to get worse as time goes along. And then we figured out how to, you know, boil water. And we started living a little longer than we used to when we didn't. Um, But I think all that's pretty straightforward. The only other thing that could mean is that God's going to give them 120 years before the flood comes. That's another idea. Uh, But again, it's... It's not quite that clear. So here's the fun stuff. Verse number four. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Whose days? Probably Noah's days. But also afterward. Okay, if it's after Noah's days, then they're going to be on the other side of the flood. Okay, well then maybe that's not who's responsible for bringing the flood in the first place. Or maybe they survive it. That's a problem. Uh, When the sons of God, same group, come to the daughters of man... Same group again. And they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old. So when you see of old, is that like this man talking now, who's writing way later, talking back to the period of time that's being discussed? And that's the the time of old, the days of old with the mighty men, the men of renown? Or is that that they've been here way before the period of time that's being talked to? Again, hard to tell. So who are the Nephilim? Nephilim is a transliterated word. Anybody want to tell me what transliterated? You get a free biscuit. Um, Just kidding. You can go tell people at lunch, I want a free biscuit for knowing a factoid. Transliteration is when one language uses its alphabet and goes to another language and uses a word they can't pronounce, and they transcribe it letter for letter. Like uh, in Hebrew, it'd be an aleph for an A. In English, we call it an A. In Greek, uh, it's, it's uh, alpha. That's their A. We call it A. So if we want to take a word, we don't know what it is, and we don't know how it sounds, and we don't know what it means. We just transliterate it and say it. But it kind of takes for granted we don't know what it means because we don't know what Nephilim means. It's an old word in an old language that's been transliterated a couple of times to get to English. Now, we can make an educated guess because most words are compound words with beginnings and endings that change the way the word might work, right? You've got a root word, and, and that's kind of the same, but you might change the function of the word by... You know, it's tense or, or singular or plural, so on and so forth. Our best guess at some of the components of that word Nephilim could go one of two ways. They're, they're guesses, but they're educated guesses. One would be giants. The other would be the fallen. The fallen, the Nephilim, that's the number one reason why people want to take it back to Jude 6. Now, giants... They'd say, well, we see that somewhere else. And uh, it was in Numbers 13 where the spies go out to look at Canaan. You know, ten saw bad and two saw good. You know the song, right? Or you didn't go to Sunday school. Or back long enough. You're not old enough to know the song. Um, 
What'd they do when they found the place? Big grapes and big men. We were like grasshoppers in comparison. Strong giants like Goliath, the sons of Anak. So maybe we're talking about the same people. Maybe we're not. And then you've got the words those days and also afterward. Okay, afterward what? The flood or afterward these days or right up until the flood? It gives us problems because the giants, if that's what they are, or the fallen, if they're the Nephilim, who are intermarrying with the daughters of man, uh, they could be tied to the sons of God. Some would have been there already, but it says they're going to be there afterward. So it starts to get even more confusing. Men of renown, despite their origin and fame, the word men is a regular word. Even so, if the Nephilim are these people, it seems that um, they're quite human. And then I remember someone who said, well, if they're spirits, and that's the problem, you're going to need more than a flood to kill them. They don't have lungs. They can't drown. And I was saying, hmm. But then in this case, they're men of renown. They're big men. They have a reputation. Famous, they still only seem to be human, at least by the clear interpretation of those words. So again, some of these things we just don't know, but quite a bit is very clear. It gets very clear when we get to verse 5, and it's kind of hard to think of anything else being the central point of this passage after we read verse 5, because it's so clear. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw. Remember when we were talking about saw and, 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 and saw that it was good? Well, now we're looking at God, and he's seeing what is bad. Wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. It grieved him to his heart. He regretted that he'd done it. So um, now he sees everything's bad, worse than ever. And I want to just look at those words just so you can see and judge for yourself whether or not you think this is the, the most intense point, thrust, uh, purpose of this passage. Um, Every intention is where he starts. That's a motive. You know how it says in Hebrews 4.12, words like a a sharper sword, two-edged sword, piercing, even dividing asunder, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nobody knows that but you. Well, God knows that with these people, their intention, their motive, and their thoughts seems though it's premeditated, planned, and purposed of man's heart, which is basically the seat of our emotions, the bedrock of our person. Uh, you don't just say, uh, from the bottom of my heart, for no reason. It's a way of saying, this is me, it's the truth. So it's their heart, it's their intentions, their thoughts, was only, so that's an exclusive Evil, that's the opposite of good, and it's continually, it's all time. So one commentator had said, a more emphatic statement of the wickedness of the human heart is hardly conceivable. How would you say it in any more certain terms? Diagnosis is terminal. So what does it mean that the Lord regretted that he'd made the earth? That's the other big stumbling block here. Because folks might want to say, listen, I, I, I just... Thinking out loud here, but you, you, you got you kind of gotta wonder if God's God, can't he see what's going to happen if he knows everything? And then if something's going to just go downhill irreparably, 
Wouldn't he just like stop it from happening or not start it to begin with? This is a tough one because anywhere where humans are talking about God, they're at a disadvantage, just like uh, that thing I bring up all the time, a kid's ant farm on his desk. The ants can't really talk about the kid at the desk the same way that the kid at the desk can talk about his ants. He's a superior being. So we can talk about all the ways in which the Bible describes God like us, having you know, strong arms or uh, with his breath open the Red Sea. These are all ways to explain to humans what needs to be explained in a way we can explain it. But is there any reason why a God who made the world out of nothing for the purpose of sharing his goodness with the humans he made in his own image. Is there anything wrong with him being emotionally attached, grieved, even if he knew it was going to happen anyway? Does that violate any laws of of logic or any laws of his own character? I don't think it does. And... We'd have to stretch to find an illustration that might be close, and then it's, it's still far enough away by a mile. But just suppose a, a parent and one of their children, and the child is not you know, in a high chair or a car seat anymore. It's, it's, it's more of an adult conversation. And any parents who've ever raised children past the uh, you know, empty nest spot know that it, it's not all fun, right? There's times where you don't agree on things. Let's say it's a big one. And it's to the point where it's it's one of those things where as a Christian right and wrong is clear, but but there's a difference of opinion and it's, you know, and under this roof with this house with your brothers and sisters or whatever. If you're going to keep this up, you're going to have to keep this up somewhere else. And saying it knowing that separation could very well be the fallout. Can you still grieve over that as a parent? As a parent having done the right thing, knowing what it costs, and weighing the cost of them being here or them being out there, this is right and the other is wrong. This isn't for children. This, this is for keeps. Uh, this is taking this book at, it, at its worth and, and preserving what it looks like with the rest of the family. What do you do? Of course you can be grieved. Of course you can go to bed and say, Lord, this hurts so bad, I wonder if I should have brought them into the world to start with. But we could never have seen that. None of us ever hoped for that, though we've seen others that that happens. This is life in a sin-stained world, right? But is it okay for God to look at it, knowing down the road... It's his son that's going to pay for the sins of the world. Does he ever say, did, I, did we pay too much? Now, this is way upstream of that. So, yeah, I think we give him some room. I think that the author of Genesis can be demonstrative and colorful and, and, and say these things. With the rest of our Bibles, we understand that that's not a different God or a limited God or an open God like an open theism. He's just seeing what happens and you know, acting accordingly. No, he knows what's going to happen all along. So, 
it may be better to ask, um, could we say that the deeper one loves, the deeper they're angry? So if this is the worst offense against the holiness of God as the world is more wicked than it's ever been, then he has justification to be more angry than he's ever been. Even though we know that he's going to provide a means for their salvation even so. All right, look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. That'll be the flood. Man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. There's no fish mentioned. They're going to be fine. For I am sorry that I have made them. And then, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the last two verses show God's characteristic ways with evil. No matter where we find it in Scripture, it's always the same. You've got simultaneous extremes of judgment and salvation. You've got there in the same address, they, these are neighbors on the same street. I'll blot them all out, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You've got judgment and you've got salvation, both at the same spot. And wherever we find that salvation, it's always gratuitous. Same as this world is gratuitous. God didn't need to make it. He made it because he wanted to. He gives us grace because he wants to. It goes for Abraham, Lot, any of the judges, Mary, the mother of Jesus was a sinner like you and I. She was highly favored among all women. How? Because God chose her among all women to be his mother. Again, the things we can't totally wrap our, our heads around. So now that we've covered these things, especially the stumbling blocks, uh, familiar or famous <clears throat> as they are, I think the best thing to do with the remainder of our time... Um, is leave what may be considered another biblically unsolved mystery until we get to heaven and explore a few implications of those last two verses, especially verse 8, and ask ourselves, what does this change about our thinking? Because that, that's what an implication is. An application is, go, go thou, do likewise. You saw it, it's what you're supposed to do, now go do it. This is more like, okay, we're... we're forming our thoughts about God, our place in this world, how it came to be. Does anything in here change the way we think or prompt us to think differently? Evaluate it. Does this work? Does it not? So if you remember, here's where we've gone since Labor Day. In chapter 1, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now by chapter 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, every intention the thoughts of his heart on evil continually. And then I will blot out consequently or as a result of man whom I've created from the face of the land but Noah found favor in God's eyes word translated favor we can translate we don't have to transliterate that one that one's an easy one and it also means grace so you could translate the same sentence but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord grace or favor it's all the same thing what does it mean that this one man, one out of multiplied humanity over the face of the earth, finds grace in the eyes of God? Well, we'll cheat and use one verse from next week. We'll pay him back next week. Look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Okay, we got a fuller picture, and then it goes on with some genealogy and then the discussion over... Uh, the ark. There are two ways that we can account for favor in God's eyes regarding Noah. 
and the pattern's going to be the same no matter who we're talking about in Scripture from front to back. Um, your first option is that because Noah was righteous and blameless, and that would be in his own strength, he somehow attracted God's attention. God noticed him. And as a result of his being a fine, upstanding, righteous man, God favored him. That's one option. The second option is that Noah was given grace or favor, but as a gift of God's free initiative, not because of any behavior or spark of potential in Noah's part. And that because he received that grace, he's counted righteous and blameless in verse 9. It's, it's one of the two. Either Noah earned it, or God gave it to him for nothing. Um, because even if it's one cent, it's earned. It's not a gift anymore. Christmas time, opening presents. If you paid for them, they're not gifts, right? Not, not the way it works at all. So the Bible as a whole and its theme from cover to cover of undeserved, unmerited grace is going to argue very strongly for the fact that Noah fits under that banner as well and that it's not at all because he earned it. That's grace. So if you look in verse uh, 7 of Hebrews 11, you probably know this, at least you know of the chapters, the hall of faith is a place in the New Testament that's not cryptic at all about Noah and what he did. By faith Noah, being warned of God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, yeah, I'd, I'd say, um, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So put that against what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, and it's not even close. Noah is righteous by faith because unlike Adam and Eve who heard what God said, heard what the snake said, and decided for themselves to go with the snake that God's not trustworthy. They, they didn't receive his favor or trust his word. Noah here trusts God's word and demonstrates that trust by acting on those words. God commanded him to build an ark, even though it never rained, and he does. He does what God commanded him. Noah's not righteous then because of what he did, um, but because of who he trusted. You see, it's not like God's looking down on the world for exceptional standouts that can operate like he does. He's looking across the world for those made in his own image who will reflect his glory as a created being. It's, it's a completely different way to look at Really, the world. And then you notice the author in Genesis tells us first that Noah found favor. And then he goes for chapters telling us how Noah built an ark as God directed. And you've got to wonder if that's on purpose. Uh, because that's the same pattern we see through the scriptures front to back. There's one thing I'd like to, to use here. Uh, we'll wrap it up this way. And it, it might be helpful We've looked at what Genesis 6 is famous for, but we're looking now at what seems to be a clear uh, ray of hope on a very dark horizon. But uh, Christopher 
Watkin, uh, he, he, author of one of the sources that I use for putting all this together, some of the philosophical stuff that I repeat and watch half of you go to sleep, you thank him for. Uh, but, but this is one of the things that I thought was particularly helpful because he said, up until this point with Noah, all the ancient religions were basically the same. They all worked off the same format. And to this day, most of the world works on the same format. And he describes um, uh, an inverted U. Um, sometimes we use this in, in math and geometry. You've got a U and then an inverted U. And if, if it helps, think of it as a, as a lowercase n and then a lowercase u. One, one's shaped you know, like this, the other's shaped down. This is just for visual. Don't think too hard. But in most respects, other than Noah, the way that anybody thought about God was based off that inverted u. You offer up something to this deity in the sky in hopes that they'll drop down some blessing for you. All of them work that way. It, it, it goes from uh, sacrificing a bunch of animals before a battle in order to win the battle. You know, Saul got in trouble for stuff like that. Um, this would be the same as the Aztecs, like cutting the heart out of a human being so the sun will rise the next morning. I don't even want to talk about what Molech required for a harvest. But the idea is, and it can get into these very oppressive and, and crazy, especially in, in Rome where they had these pantheons and then all these other god spinoffs and trying to remember who to sacrifice to to keep from getting into big trouble. But in order for anything to come down in your favor, you've got to put something up as far as a sacrifice. It's going to make a lot of sense when we get to the part where Abraham is told to do what? Sacrifice his own son? What kind of God is this? All the gods are like that. This part of the world. It's a, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But there's some really important scratching going on. Well, in this case, that, that, that's the way it worked until we see this situation with Noah. Um, and then even to this day, it, it doesn't even have to be religious. It can be non-religious. It, it's, it's means and ends. And what justification do you have to use these means to get these ends? Our whole market society is based on this. And we have to have regulators come in and try to make the whole thing fair. Why? Because we are horribly predisposed to wanting the advantage out of that whole thing. One more scratch than the other person, right? So if we want something really big from heaven, we've really got to turn over a new leaf, something like that. Or we have a business relationship. How much of the relationship is based off really what we get <laughs> in return for it or just because we enjoy the relationship? In fact, there's some philosophers that think that you cannot find on this planet an unselfish motive that doesn't involve some form of that, that N-shaped or upside-down U. This is what I want. This is what I'd be willing to give up to get it. And then you've got what we see here in Genesis. We've got the grace given to Noah 
That's opposite. Turn it upside down. Which is actually, if you're talking about a you, it's right side up. God gives grace out of nowhere to this man named Noah. And Noah, in response to the grace, builds an ark out of obedience. Now, how would that change the relationship between God and Noah as opposed to any of these people and their God, Molech? Well, God's blessing comes out of nowhere for Noah, gratuitously, just like creating an entire universe for no reason, but to share it with those he created. This is a U-shaped dynamic. God sends down grace to Noah. He responds up in obedience. This allows for worship as a response, not as a negotiation. That is major difference. This allows us to look at God, any at God, with awe, wonder, adoration, love, rather than as a man upstairs who must be upset with us if things aren't going smoothly for us that week. Uh-oh, I must have made him mad somehow. I'll need to do better next week, and hopefully I'll have a better run at things. That's negotiation. So the inverted you is manipulative. You're just out for yourself. The you is receptive. Why in the world would he be doing this for me? I don't deserve it. So instead of instrumentalizing or objectifying relationships for personal gain or pleasure, Christianity, based on these ideas, motivated by God's grace, allows our relationships to be ends in themselves, at least if we can get out of our own way and let Christ love each other through us. They're not means to other ends. One way that we see here uses God because we want to enjoy His gifts. While the other uses the gifts in order to enjoy God. And I think that must have been what was going on with Cain and Abel. What did it say about Abel? He brought his best. Why? Some reason. Maybe he understood Maybe they still talked with God. It seemed as though they did. Where Cain, he just brought him some of his stuff. I don't know. I might be getting a bad deal. So sometimes I like to leave it with a a would you rather or which would you rather. You know, at the end, just two options. One, would you rather be liked for what you can do for someone? Well, it depends on what I have to do and depends on how important the person is. Maybe I don't mind doing certain things for really important people. But really, is that what you want? Or would you rather be loved for who you are, regardless? Because you were made that way, for that purpose. Two different religions. One is different than the rest of the whole world. So what have we learned? Well, we've, if we put it in the form of questions, sometimes it helps us think from the other side around. Was sin really that bad in this passage? Yeah, that's a pretty bad description. I don't think it could get any worse. Was God really that mad in this passage? Yeah. I mean, he regrets he made the whole thing. That's the way he chooses to explain to us how bad it hurts. Is God really going to punish the whole world? He did. A worldwide flood. He's got science to back it up. There's all kinds of stratification of dirt in places it shouldn't be with the heavy stuff on the top and the light stuff on the bottom. And that, that needed to happen like quick or even easier than that, fish buried in the mountains. 
like lots of them, they got stuck. Something happened. We believe it was a worldwide flood, just as it says. So, yeah, he really was that mad because the world was that bad, and he really did punish the whole world, but he really did save eight of them in an ark by his grace so that later he could save the whole world through his son. That's the way the story goes. Here's how it's said specifically. For by grace, that's a gift you didn't earn or deserve, you have been saved through faith. All right, Faith seems to be the mechanism. And this is not your own doing. What do you mean? It is the gift of God. What is? The faith. Not as a result of works. Why not? So that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. He made us, not the other way around, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has extended an offer of grace. Undeserved favor. question is, have you received it? If he's, if he's dropped it down, do you praise back up? That's so fantastic. I'll, I'll, I'll live for you. I'm saved. I was dead. I was lost. Now I'm found. And how can it work? Well, we'll have to get all the way to the New Testament to find out. It'll, it'll, it'll all be hammered out on a cross. That's where it all makes sense. And uh, since we've been singing about it, like grace greater than all our sin. That's how we'll wrap up today. Uh, it's hymn number 201. David's going to lead us. But I'm going to pray for us first. Father in heaven, we thank you for grace greater than all our sin. It's a, it's a beautiful story. Lord, we've got to do the homework. Decide whether or not it's true. Lord, may we claim by faith what you've offered freely. Because you can. You're the one that would pay for it. You're satisfied. You authorized the deal. And Lord, would you give us humility to read through these things and understand that for a lot of the time, our hearts, the intentions of our thoughts are evil a lot. If it's not, it's because of your grace. We need to be saved. We've got no hope without you. Lord, I'd, I'd ask that anyone who's never heard these things before would think them through. But I ask anyone who knows more to help them if they're confused. And that for your glory, not for ours or anyone else's. Lord, we thank you for Genesis and for the story of, of Noah who found favor. And we ask all this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.